0: Good morning. A scripture today comes from Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 18 through chapter 17, verse 20. Um, uh, get comfortable and pay attention. <laughs> Moses is speaking. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord." If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man... Or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told to you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on evidence of one witness." The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right, And another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision." Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord, your God, or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, then you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother." Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God's word for us today.
1: Brothers and sisters, justice is the theme of this passage and it is not an invention of man. It's not in the eye of the beholder. It's not a power grab in the guise of a moral absolute. It's not grounded in what feels right or feels fair to you. It's it's culturally expressed, but it is not derived. Justice is not derived from the fleeting whims of human thought or human imagination. God and God alone is the source of, and root and definition and guarantee of justice on the earth. Put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Put that in front of your eyes when you're watching the news at night. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright Is he, the Lord has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the Holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night? Will will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Like we could just go on and on. If, if you, why do, what's the point of those texts? If, if you hear the word justice and the first thing that comes to your mind is what somebody else is doing or not doing or what you are doing or not doing, you don't understand justice at all. If it's not who God is or what God has done, what God will do and what makes God glorious, then you don't understand justice at all. And we, we love to throw around that word, don't we? Especially in the last 10, 15 years, I think. We, environmental justice, racial justice, social justice, it's, it's tagged to everything now. But do we actually know what we're even talking about? The, the last time you wrote, you used the word justice on your social media feed, did you even stop to think about what am I even referring to? Absent a God of justice, we have nothing but my take on it versus your take on it. What seems just to you versus what seems just to me, we, we have nothing outside of our oso subjective selves and our ever-changing majority culture opinions. You feel that? Problem? We we bandy about moral categories like justice, but we've we've totally jettisoned the only moral foundation. The just God with whom we have to do and before whom is all our ways. In this whole section of Deuteronomy, it's easy to get kind of lost in the weeds and forget, well, where are we in this book? Chapter 12 to chapter 26, Moses is laying out for Israel. They're on the plains of the Jordan waiting to go into the promised land, Canaan. He's laying out for Israel. What does it look like to live the kind of life Yahweh requires? And he's told us a bunch of things since chapter 12. It means worshiping God in the way he requires and makes possible. It means carefully obeying his word. It means holiness, sacrifice, generosity, Caleb's sermon last week, joy, but it also means practicing justice. That's where we're at today because our God is a God of justice. The the point of this whole section friends is That we worship a just God by practicing justice. And in these verses, the Lord shows us some of what that looks like. And that's good for us. So what what does it look like to practice justice? Answer number one, this isn't exhaustive, but this is some of what the Lord speaks to here. First, it means refusing to show partiality. Refusing to show partiality. Look at verse 18. I want you to notice here the the connection between who was about to give Israel the land and how they were supposed to live in the land. Do you see that in verse 18? You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Why must the Israelites judge one another in the land with righteous judgment? Well, because the land is a gift from a righteous God, a just God. They're God's people in in God's place under, under God's rule. And because he's a God who practices justice, they must be careful. Look at verse 19 to not pervert or literally bend or turn, twist justice. And Moses gives us two examples, lest we charge through this sermon and this text using the word, but not knowing what it means. (laughs) First, not perverting justice means not practicing partiality or, or favoritism. Literally translated, that phrase is, do not regard faces. Friend, there's nothing wrong with looking at someone's face or their life or whatever else it is about them and observing a difference between you and them. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is when we assign worth or value to people on the basis of those differences. And then we respect or reject them accordingly. That's partiality. That that's favoritism. And and yes, the primary context here, well aware of this, Deuteronomy 16 is a court of law. We'll keep coming back to that. That's the the context into which Moses is speaking. But but hear me, the, the priority of practicing justice by treating all the people around us with the dignity they deserve as image bearers of the living God, that applies to all of your life. You realize that? So we reject the partiality that, that would only open our hearts and our homes to people who are in our economic class. We, we reject the partiality that, that would only spend our free time with people in our demographic or, or who share our life experiences or are easy to get along with. <laughs> We also reject the prejudice. Prejudice is just another form of partiality that assigns someone a different worth or value because of the color of their skin. Because the the history of our own city on this front is is especially sordid, I want us to linger here for just a minute, okay? On a racial front... God's goal for us as his people, what, what practicing justice instead of partiality requires, listen to me very carefully, is not becoming color blind. Or getting to a point on Sunday morning where you come in and you don't see color. I've heard that. That's, that's not Biblical justice. Here's a question, okay? Does the fact that God practices justice and only justice mean he doesn't see the poor or widows? Does the fact that God practices justice and only justice means he just sees generic people? No. No right? No. And thanks be to God. No, right? He counts all of our sorrows. He knows your frame front, including the challenges you face, challenges we face because of our ethnic background or the color of our skin. He sees those things. He knows those things. Practicing justice means among many things, but on, on the racial side, especially that we take time, to listen to one another's stories, understand one another's sorrows, and, and minister the hope and help of Christ accordingly. And I'm not just talking about, you know, black and white tensions here. Okay, I, I thank God for the, the multitude of ethnicities that he's bringing together in this church. And that gives us opportunities to to listen and love well. I'll give you an example. When... When three black people are shot at a dollar general in Jacksonville, you might not feel troubled at all when you walk in here the next Sunday. Why not? Because you don't look like any of them. You can't, you can't identify with them. You, you, you don't really relate to them. And partiality would size up that situation and say, I'm not particularly bothered by what happened you shouldn't be particularly bothered either. So I'm not going to take time to ask you how you're doing. Brothers and sisters, there, there are men and women in this church who we dearly love, who are troubled and shaken and grieve when a shooting like that happens. Why? Because they see themselves. They see their children. They, they long for justice. And, and this is what justice says. This is what people of God who serve a just God by practicing justice do. Justice does this. I refuse to give my life experiences pride of place. I'm going to love and honor you as an image bearer of God by leaning in and asking questions and looking for opportunities to comfort and care. Why? Because the injustice of partiality is more than an error in judgment, my friends. It's a a violation of the law of love. That's the first illustration. Don't practice partiality. Here's the second. How, how might we pervert justice? When Moses switches gears. He's back to the legal realm. And he says, do not take a bribe. Don't take a bribe. What, what, is a, what does a bribe represent? Well, a, a bribe, think of it this way, okay? It's a, it sets up a, what we would call here in the States, a legal language, a quid pro quo (laughs) relationship, kind of a a tit for tat, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, where I treat you not according to what is true and right, but according to whatever you've given me lately. Make sense? And so in the legal realm, it's, it's partiality driven by selfish gain. To which I say, Lord, help us. Lord, help us because we can do the exact same kind of thing in all our relationships. Think about this, right? How often do you, do you withhold the love an image-bearer of God deserves because they've been mean to you lately? You ever done that? Or, or how often do we evaluate your motives? How often is our, our love and our care for other people really compelled by the fact that they've been nice to us lately. Those are quid pro quo relationships where the way I treat you is entirely controlled by what you've given me lately instead of what? Instead of the God who fashioned you in his image. Brothers and sisters, let's not do in the relational realm the very same thing a bribe does In the legal realm. Principle applies. Justice and only justice we must follow. Look at verse 20. Because our life in God's kingdom depends on it. Why? Because there is a just and righteous God in heaven who rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, to to whom all of us will give an account. And so what is Moses telling Israel? What's the Lord saying to us today? same principle, experiencing his favor and his blessing, the the joy of relationship with him. That requires walking in his ways. If you're not willing to walk in his ways, you won't experience the life and joy of relationship with him. I'm not saying your practice of justice earns that relationship with God. Don't go there. Don't write me off because you think I'm going there. I am saying that if you're not willing to walk in the ways of a just God, you will never know the joy of life with that God. We have to practice justice by refusing to show partiality. We just scratched the surface, but let's keep going. How else do we practice justice? Point number two, by protecting the holiness of the church. Protecting the holiness of the church. Now, when you get to verse 21, look at your Bible, you might think, okay, three verses, we're on the justice theme, we're rolling along. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside. what the, What? how do we get to gardening? <laughs> don't set up a pillar, don't sacrifice blemished animals. Like, okay, so did we like take a bathroom break from justice? I mean, what, what's going on? Well, there's a really important connection here. Moses isn't just rambling and getting a little old, you know? Think of it this way. Justice treats someone with the respect and dignity and love and honor they deserve because of who they are. In the case of our fellow man, who are we? Image bearers of God. But here's the thing, if when you think about justice, the only thing that comes to your mind is how other people are treating you or how you're treating other people, then you have forgotten the most important expression of justice in the cosmos. Do you know what that is? It's how all of us are treating God. Are, are, we, are we giving our maker that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious. Are we giving him the adoration and affection and allegiance and obedience and loyalty that he deserves? Are you, are you treating God justly according to who he is? According to his worthiness. And that explains why as Moses turns to worship concerns, he's not leaving justice behind at all. Having established the principle, he simply directs us to the most important place in our life. It plays out. And he does that by by bringing forward two examples, both still from the legal realm Where Israel is to practice justice. And and the first regards her worship as a nation. And in particular, how to respond when someone stops worshiping the Lord, their God. Look at verse 3. This first scenario, verses 2 to 7. Moses addresses a situation where an Israelite has what? Gone and served other gods and worshiped them. So what's going on? It's a high-handed, scandalous act of public idolatry. It's it's not a hidden matter of the heart, all right? It's it's visible sin compromising the spiritual integrity of the people of God and their witness to the glory of God and the goodness of God on earth. So when that's going down, what does practicing justice require? Good question. Look at verse 4, chapter 17. First, notice here, There's a nationwide every member responsibility to do something about that, to act. If it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. Inquire diligently. Why? Because an apathetic response would be entirely unjust given the weight and worth of the glory of God. Do you see that? So what you may not say, Israel, is I'll let someone else deal with that. What do we pay the pastors to do anyway? Fix that. No, you must take responsibility, Moses says. You must inquire diligently. It's an every member responsibility. Second principle here, when you act, and you must act, practice due process. That's, that's all over verses 2 through 7. Rumors and hearsay are insufficient, Israel. True and certain. Do you see those words? True and certain is the standard. And, and the testimony of at least two or three eyewitnesses is required. Why? So you don't have Joe Schmo over here. I saw him bowing down to Baal. I actually didn't, but I just am jealous of the fact that he got more wheat this year and his wine tastes better. I saw him. You know, it's like, no, <laughs> no. Two or three witnesses. And you could say at this point, well, this is what, why so many rules and regulations? Well, it's because the, the entire process has to what? Reflect the integrity of God's own justice. And friends, God's judgments, they're, they're not capricious. They're not impulsive. They're, they're true and just. And notice the Lord's purpose in all of this. And rendering judgment through the judgment of his people. What's what's his purpose? Look at the end of verse 7. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Listen to me. If you're a member of our church, walking the path of unrepentance is really serious because your sin doesn't just affect you. Do you realize that? It affects the, the spiritual health of all the people around you. It affects the purity of our witness to the world. That's why a passive response on our part, on Israel's part, is not an option. And those words, you shall purge the evil from your midst, they show up again centuries later. In 1 Corinthians 5, where where Paul gives the church in Corinth detailed instruction on how to discipline a man in their midst who's committed a particularly serious scandalous sin. 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Boasting in your freedom? Ought you not rather to... To mourn, let him who has done this be removed from among you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Purge the evil person from among you. I want you to notice because this is, this flies in the face of so much of what culture tells us. Okay? Okay. I don't want you to think culturally at this moment in the sermon. I want you to think biblically. What 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 is the goal in excommunicating this man? In publicly removing him from membership in the church, releasing him from the kingdom of God back into the kingdom of the world. Is it about shaming and punishing him? I'm going to ask that again. you You can go yes or no. Is it about shaming or punishing him? No. Is it about shaming or punishing him? No. Is it about shaming or punishing? No. What is it about? What's it about? Disciplining him. That he would come to his senses and return to the Lord and be saved on the day of judgment. So why is there not any mention here of the stepwise process of discipline? Some of you are thinking this, that Jesus institutes for the church in Matthew 18. If you have no clue what I'm talking about now, go back and listen to some sermons that we preached in a series called A People Set Apart earlier this summer. But, but why is there no mention of the whole, you know, bring one, bring two, bring three, tell the church, all that. Listen, it's not because there's one process for less serious sins Matthew 18 and another process for more serious sins. First Corinthians five. Why not? Because in both chapters, the church is responsible for practicing justice by discerning the true spiritual condition of that member's heart. In every case, whether what they did falls on a serious list in your mind or not, The question is the same. Does the evidence for unrepentance outweigh, or is it outweighed by, the evidence for repentance in this person's life? That's the question. And in most cases, a significant amount of time with multiple circles of involvement is necessary to confirm someone has chosen the path of unrepentance. That's what the gradual process in in Matthew 18 is all about. But, But there are other situations, there are some situations where little to no time is required to confirm someone has chosen the path of unrepentance. It's immediately clear and the people of God must immediately act. And that's what immediate discipline in first Corinthians five is all about. I Like how Jonathan Lehman says this, purging the evil person from your midst. What's going on here? There are, he writes, no doubt, some sins that are so deliberate like a long pattern of abuse or murder or repugnant like sexual predatory behavior or extortion that any quick words of apology would be unbelievable. He's right, isn't he? It's not that such sins cannot be forgiven. Praise be to God. Or that a person might not be immediately repentant. Can the Holy spirit do that? Yep. But some time needs to pass and the fruit of repentance displayed before a church can responsibly pronounce forgiveness. The nature of some sins, this is 1 Corinthians 5, disables a church's ability to continue affirming the person's overall posture of repentance. And so the church has no choice but to remove its affirmation for the time being. It's really helpful. We need to remember that today, the the people of God are are no longer defined as citizens of a theocracy. That's that's the original context into which Moses is preaching here. The ethnic nation state of Israel. We're not defined as citizens of a theocracy today. How are the people of God defined today? As members of local churches. That's what we're defined today. So the, the context is, changed on this side of Jesus' cross work, but the principle is the same. Guard, protect the holiness of the people of God. King's way, guard and protect the purity of our witness to the world. And that doesn't start with, well, let me walk around and find somebody who's sinned so I can tell the pastor this week. <laughs> no, friend, that starts with walking humbly before God yourself. Start with you. Don't turn a blind eye. Don't don't ignore sin because it's messy. The the public integrity of the Lord we serve is at stake. Practice justice by protecting the holiness of the church. Point number three. What's another way we practice justice? Submit to the human authorities God has established. I wanted you to rant and rail against all the injustice out there and, you know, end with an encouraging word about Jesus. Well, that's not what the Lord sees fit to do. He knows our hearts. And he knows that in this area, it's the people of God, we can really struggle to practice justice. Look, look at verses 8 through 13 pick up the pace a bit here. Moses highlights another scenario where justice has to prevail. He's telling Israel, how do you handle legal cases that are too difficult for the local judges and officers? So what do they do? Look at verse nine. Arise and go up to the place that the Lord, your God will choose. Go to the appeals court, so to speak, that will eventually become Jerusalem, the highest court in the land. And and when that court issues a legal decision, how must the parties respond? Look at verse 10. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. Notice that. We'll come back to that. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. Why not decide? (laughs) Why not decide? Moses, I get the fact that when you came down off that mountain, you gave us stone tablets that had God's literal handwriting on them. I'm good with doing that, you know, most of the time, I suppose. But these guys aren't saints. I know Joe. Yeah, he's an officer. Yeah, he's a priest. Yeah, he's a judge, but you don't know Joe. He's got a missing screw or two, Moses. He's made some decisions that, um, just to put it, you know, gently, I I disagree with. And I didn't know, Moses, if you were aware of the fact that, you know, unlike the the just and trustworthy God we love to talk and sing about, that Joe, well, (laughs) he's not God. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's correct. That's more correct than you know. And you're not God either. Why is that a problem? Well, because if you reject the priest or the judge's authority, Moses says, you're rejecting God's authority. Think about that. Repeated references. Look carefully here. To the decision coming from what? The place that the Lord will choose. Implicitly affirms what verse 12, look there, makes very explicit. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying a priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge. That man shall die. Why? Because Joe's perfect? No. Because that man is ultimately spurning the authority of God who established Joe and gave Joe authority in the first place. God stands behind Joe. That's why Israel. Paul makes the same connection in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Teachers. Parents. Police officers. Presidents. Governors, even the ones you didn't vote for. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. (laughs) But how is that possible, you ask? They're corrupt. I mean, Matthew, isn't the reason there's so much injustice in the world is because there's so many unjust people in the world and because of this sinful injustice in their hearts, they create structures and systems that reflect that injustice and, you know, it just kind of keeps going. Aren't the powerful people the problem? You ever heard that? Thought that? They're corrupt. They're they're wicked. I resist them. I'm resisting God. What? Well, Paul would agree with your assessment, friend. I mean, when he wrote Romans 13, guess what authority he's talking about. It's not Mr. Rogers. It's Nero. It's the Roman Empire. Don't, Don't come to that passage and say, well, Paul, that's good. You know, for maybe your parents, but mine are ridiculous. Nero was insane. Paul isn't commanding us. Moses isn't telling Israel to practice justice by submitting the authorities God has established because God agrees with everything they're doing or because we agree with everything they're doing. Unless what they're telling you to do explicitly violates the word of God and that is an important qualifier, you have to obey. Even if you disagree, because God has established them. It means we submit to God by submitting to them. Hear that, my friend, especially if you're an American. Okay? God is watching when you file your taxes. God is watching when you drive I95 God is watching when you when you fill out an employment application or submit a resume or some immigration paperwork or or in a multitude of other situations where it is oh so tempting isn't it to lie to withhold the truth it takes it takes tremendous humility to submit to imperfect human authority as an expression of obedience, justice, because we know that behind that stands God's perfect authority. That takes humility. I was so grateful. A friend of mine in this church recently said, You know, Matthew, a lot of people are encouraging me to lie to the INS and say I was threatened in my home country so I can get asylum. But pastor, I wasn't. I wasn't. And for me to say that would be to lie to God. And to knowingly, to use Moses' words, turn aside from the verdict immigration has given me. I'm humbled when you share testimonies like that. Because that choice comes with cost. Real cost. It's real easy, friends, on a morning like this to be, yep, we're, you know, just like the submission train. Whoop, whoop. You know, we're going to submit to governing authorities. We're going to submit. It's going to cost me that. Oh, well, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Brother, you know who you are. And I'm not looking at you so I don't inadvertently single you out. But... I am thankful for many examples like that in this church. May that be our attitude, friends. That, that's what it looks like to practice justice. We, we submit to God's authority even when it's expressed through imperfect men and women. Not, not because well, that's just the thing we do, grin and bear it. but no, because we trust God's perfect authority. Amen. We trust the Lord. Is He able to work for your good? all the junk that unjust authorities in your life bring to pass in your life? Yes! Yes! If if you're living with your parents and and it's not just like in your head they're ridiculous. If they're actually ridiculous, (laughs) is your just and mighty God able to work all of that for the greatest good in your life? Yes! It's a call to humility. That's a whole another sermon. (laughs) But you cannot Worship our just God by practicing justice absent humility before our God. We have to move on. Yes, we do. Point number four. (laughs) How else must we practice justice? We have to end with this. We hope in King Jesus. We hope in King Jesus. Verses 14 through 20. We have lunch after the service today. So you're going to get fed within minutes of the sermon ending. So that means I can have your fullest attention right now. Okay. If you're thinking about lunch, I'm thinking about lunch. Trust me. You can do that even while you're preaching. And just know we're about to eat great food. So hang with me. Food's come coming. But we need to see something here. Friend, when you need justice... When you are, when you are longing for justice, because some of you know exactly what it means to experience injustice. When you're suffering under the crushing weight of that, what do you do? Where are you going to turn? Well, Moses tells you in verse eight, look there. Go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. In other words, what's he saying? We look to the Lord. We look to the Lord. The justice for which your heart aches is not something a human being, a mere man, can give you. It's ultimately something God and God alone can give. Now, that doesn't mean, here we go, taking some sort of laissez-faire approach to all the opportunities the Lord may give you in your personal life to contend for justice. We don't have an attitude toward injustice in the world that says, you know, I'm just gonna hope in Jesus and hope that the scary dream goes away. It's like, do hope in Jesus. But as God gives you opportunity, contend for justice because of Jesus because your hopes in him right so so when john robertson carefully evaluates an insurance claim it's a god-given opportunity to practice justice when sarah rogers arbitrates an hr issue it's a god-given opportunity to practice justice mom with young children when you spend half your waking hours arbitrating resolving peacemaking conflicts about meaningless things <laughs> You're practicing justice. But here's what I want all of us to remember. No matter how much influence the Lord gives you, okay? Do not locate your hope for justice in what you can do or other people do. Don't do that. That will have a profound effect, by the way, about how you communicate online. About remaining injustices. It's a big difference between a person who's speaking that, talking about that, calling that out in a way that reflects, no, no, no. My hope, it's ultimately in Jesus. It sounds like this, Psalm 10, 12, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, O God, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God? He's pouring out his heart to the Lord. Say in his heart, you will not call to account. But God, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Friends, when we long for justice, look to the Lord, but not just to the Lord in general. Okay. As verse seven reminds us, we look to a specific place of his choosing. In Israel's day, what was that place? It was the central court in Jerusalem. In our day, what is that place? It's a hill called Calvary. Because it's there. It's there. Outside the gate of Jerusalem. Where the perfectly just son of God died for all of our injustice. The witnesses were false. He was completely innocent, and yet his death displayed the height of God's justice. Why? Because he bore the sins of many. If you want proof, friend, God will not ignore justice, look to the cross. If you want proof, friend, that God will ensure justice prevails no matter what it costs him, look to the cross. It is the greatest display of God's justice the world has ever seen. And and the victory Christ won on that day ensures us of what? There is a coming day where the victory he won on that day is completely worked out and the man of terror will strike no more. In Moses' day, kings were responsible ultimately for ensuring justice prevailed in the land. But you know, at this point, Israel didn't have a king. But Moses knew that day was coming. It would come centuries later. Go read 1 Samuel 8. But he anticipates that future king's role in leading the nation and practicing justice in the way our just God requires. So look at verses 14 and 15. When you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. We won't talk about their dubious motives. (laughs) You may indeed set a king over you. You can do it, guys. But there are some requirements. First, got three of them. The king must be the man of God's choosing. It has to be one that Yahweh appoints as his representative, as an expression of his ultimate authority. The only king you should aspire to have, Israel, is the king of God's choosing. Brothers and sisters, that's the king we've got in Jesus. Isaiah forty two one. behold my servant whom I uphold, my what? Chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. My choosing. Second, the king has to be a fellow Israelite. He has to be a brother, one of God's people, right? He has to share their identity and their nature. He has to be like them so he can represent them and And care for them. Friends, that's exactly what we have in King Jesus. Hebrews 2.17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and, and faithful high priest in the service of God. Third, the king must not acquire many horses, wives, or excessive silver and gold. Yeah, pump the brakes a bit here. <laughs> What's that about? Well, well, horses represent military power in that day. They weren't toys or signs of wealth. They were military power. That the nations around Israel, they trusted in chariots, they trusted in horses. Egypt would give them for the right price. Moses says no. Why? For the same reason the psalmist says no. Psalm twenty verse seven. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust. In the name of the Lord, our God. So no horses. What's, what's a large harem represent? <coughs> well, besides unrestrained sexual pleasure, it marked political stature in the form of marriage alliances with the daughters of all the other kings. You, you have a large harem. It meant you were a political force to be reckoned with. You were a player on the international stage. And it also spelled spiritual idolatry and adultery because all of those daughters of other kings, they worshiped other gods. What's the problem with amassing excessive silver and gold? Well, usually by taxing your subjects, it meant a king was chasing selfish gain. He was more interested in being served than serving. Material riches, they, they represent self-sufficiency and, and the power to purchase allies and buy off enemies and, and do all sorts of other things besides humbly depend upon the Lord. You chase worldly power and pleasure, and wealth, as if those things are worthy of trust. Friend, that is the height of injustice because it denies God. The trust he deserves. The trust he's worthy of. What was true for the kings of Israel is true for you and me today. And if you read the history of the monarchy in Israel, what, what do you discover? Th- those were the very three areas all her kings failed. I mean, take Solomon, right? What do we know about him? 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. First Kings 10 says he, he, got, all, he got them from Egypt. The weight of gold that came to him in a single year was nearly 50,000 pounds. You pull out your phone and do the math on that with the exchange rate today. And the saddest report is First Kings 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Friend, here's the point. Where the kings of Israel epically failed, King Jesus does not. King Jesus does not. When when Satan tempted him with power and pleasure and wealth, he prevailed. He, he resisted to the point of death. He was a faithful son. What does John 8 tell us? He, he always spoke and did the things that were pleasing to the father. Jesus did everything Moses required of the kings. In verses 18 through 20, he, his life was ruled and ordered by the fear of the Lord. Every attitude and action. His heart wasn't lifted up above his brothers. He came to serve, not, not to be served. Friend, And he he did all of that to rescue you from the clutches of sin and death. Why does that matter? Because the place this text leaves us, the place God's word challenges challenges us the most on a day like this, is this question. Will you find freedom and joy in being ruled by King Jesus? Or will you refuse? There's a haunting statement. In verse 14, look there as we conclude. What does Moses anticipate the Israelites saying? I will set a king over me. Every person in this room is mastered by something. You are. Whatever you're living for, whatever you're looking to, whatever you get most excited about, that's what masters you. That's your king. Friend, if we worship our just God by practicing justice, that practice begins With giving King Jesus all our affection, all our trust, all of our worship. It means saying, I will set a king over me. I will choose King Jesus. Have you chosen King Jesus? I don't say that as if he's waiting on the sideline, just passively hoping somebody picks him for the kickball team. Will you just please ask me in your heart? I'm lonely. No. No. He's the king right now, but he longs to be your king. He longs to bring you into his kingdom. Friend, do not hear in all the talk of justice around you what men are doing, what men are not doing. That's real. God has things to say to that. We addressed that this morning. Where do you need to focus? Where, where do we land? What landing do we stick? Lord Jesus, King Jesus. Help me to trust and submit to you. It's not complicated. And that's not like a one-time, yeah, I did that in the 80s and it was great. Are you doing that today? If I look at your checkbook, your calendar, you fill in the blank. The way you spend your time, your involvement in the church, faithfulness to share Jesus with other people is, would an observer conclude, yep, that man, that woman, David King, Jesus is their king? Or would they conclude something else as your king? Friend, the call to practice justice is to surrender your life to King Jesus. So to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord it is good to linger and consider in a world that is so fixated on all manner of justice and injustice who you are you are a just God thank you for calling us thank you for empowering us through the gospel to worship you to love you by practicing justice Lord I, I pray as we as we sing this final song and then, head out to eat together, to rejoice together, that that you would make us a people that joyfully, gladly hope in you, Jesus, the king of justice, and then pursue justice and practice justice and guard the church's purity and refuse partiality because we're submitted to you. Give us grace to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.